0: Well, hello, buddy. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for coming to church. I know there's a lot of things you could have done, but you're here. And if you're online, welcome as well. Uh, We're starting a new series. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off with uh, last weekend we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, by the way. Thanks for everybody who helped to make that a really, really great weekend. Appreciate that. So after Jesus was resurrected, what what if the story had ended there? is that uh, Jesus came and he, he did these extraordinary things that changed uh, our relationship with God. And then he ascended into heaven and just said, hey, hang out and wait until I come back. it makes make for a pretty boring church, right? We just right, twiddle our thumbs and maybe one day he's coming back. That is not how the story ended. The story ended, you can read this in uh, the end of the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus' life. That Jesus looks at his followers and after spending 40 days with them after the resurrection, he, he gives them these words. He says, now I want you to go into all of the world. So it's, it's established with a verb, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Mark, he says... And I want you to go and I want you to heal the sick and I want you to cast out spirits that destroy people's lives. I want you to do these extraordinary things. So he leaves behind this thing called church. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what does it mean for the church to exist? What are we here for? Uh, Maybe there's some misunderstandings that we need to clarify. So when I even say the word church, most of us because of the culture we live in, our experiences, we have an image that comes to mind. And, you know, maybe it's a a, a beautiful little white steeple building that you drive by and you go, that would be a perfect place for someone to get married, right? It just fits that stereotype of church. Or maybe it's a big building. Maybe you've been to Europe and when you think church, you think of extravagant uh, cathedrals, Gothic architecture, whatever it might be. One of the challenges is when we say the word church, we often think Building, building. But in the first century, there wasn't a building. If we sat around with a group of followers of Jesus in the year even 120, 200 A.D., and we talked about church, there is absolutely nothing having to do with a structure that would come to their mind. They didn't exist. It wasn't about Bibles and banners and bands and choirs and robes. It was about something entirely different. Now, over these weeks we're going to look at church and there's something extraordinary that God did through people. It, no matter how hard Rome tried to eliminate it or communist China or the Soviet Union, no matter how many mistakes and scandals have been within the church, there's this this surging power that God has been working through people, changing the world. Uh, The church has changed ethics. It's changed worldviews. It's changed countless, literally countless lives. What is it that the church was meant to be and to do? That's the question that we'll ponder. Now, when I even say this phrase, big church, uh, part of this comes out of an experience I had. I bet this is over 20 years ago. I went to a, a conference. It was a church growth conference, all right? And I, I, I love the statement that the man made at the very beginning. He was a presenter, and he said this. Never focus on building a big church. Focus on building big people. And so for the last 20 years, that has just resonated in my mind. It's not about seating capacity or attendance. It's about being a big church, meaning people who have a big view of God. Worship a big God. Follow a big God are on a really big mission. That's what being a big church is about. People who are captured and raptured with this idea of who God is and what he's doing. And from that, we grow to be significant big people. Now, how did this whole idea and confusion with buildings and church come about? Well, for the first thousand years that the Bible existed, there is a word in the New Testament in Greek the word is this, ecclesia, ecclesia, all right, and the word ecclesia was translated for a thousand years as of the Lord, and so it became the house of the Lord. It became the structure and the hierarchy, the people in charge of the church. That is how we translated the word ecclesia. But the word ecclesia, it, it, that translation, it was a, it was a bad translation that led to really bad theology. This word of the Lord came from a German word that the Goths adopted in about 380 AD. And uh, their word is, my, my, my daughter tried to uh, teach me how to say this because she's studying German Kirche. Kirche, which phonetically sounds like our word church, which meant house of the Lord. House of the Lord. So, right about 300 years after Jesus died, 400 years, they started talking about the church as the house of the Lord. This is where the Lord is, He's in a house. He's in a building. Part of the beauty of what happens after the death of Jesus is he's not in a house anymore. God's left the building. He's been unleashed, and he resides in a completely different place. So let's follow this whole idea of ecclesia. What was it, the church, what was it really meant to be? Because what it means is a gathering. It simply means a gathering. So there's a guy named William Tyndale. Some of you would recognize that name from history. Uh, There's a publishing house. It's called Tyndale Publishing House. And he was really the father of the modern English Bible. This is the environment he grew up in. Um, About 1510, he becomes greatly disturbed because he's a trained theologian, He's he's a priest. He's just received his master's degree in theology, and he's never read the Bible. This was commonplace, because here was the problem. The Bible was considered so sacred, and it was so controlled by the hierarchy, the leadership of the church, that it had only ever been translated into Latin. But here's the problem. Latin has been a dead language for about 800 years. And so people around the globe would show up to a gathering like this, and someone would stand in front of them and read the scriptures in Latin, and no one understood a word that was being said. Think of that. 800 years, and there were very few. You you, you had to be near Pope or Cardinal to actually be able to read the scriptures in Latin. Priests, like William Tyndale, weren't even allowed access to the text. Why? Because it was determined that this book could be incredibly dangerous. The church had become about hierarchy and structures of power and about buildings. And the greatest fear of the church leaders was that if people read this, if they accessed this, they might compare what was with what was meant to be. So Tyndale who's brilliant. He knows seven languages free, uh, fluently. He he studied ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. He has this crazy idea that he is going to take Greek and Hebrew texts and translate them into English so that the common people could read the Bible. And so in 1524 his life is threatened because he wants to translate the Bible into English. So he flees to Germany. And Martin Luther has already created some space there. So for 12 years, he hides in Germany. He painstakingly works through translating the Old and New Testament. About 80% of a King James Bible is directly from William Tyndale's translation. He's caught and captured in 1536. Spends 500 days in prison. And then is executed. I'm going to show you a picture of William Tyndale. Gentlemen, how many of you are just happy that we don't have to wear fluffy collars any longer? I mean, that just looks about misery upon misery, especially when you don't have a neck like me. That just would not, that would not go well. So this is him, this guy who had this audacious, audacious idea to translate the Bible into English. Now, this next picture is from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's a picture of his execution in 1536. He's uh, bound to a stake. He's strangulated. It was considered mercy that he wouldn't be burned at the stake. He'd be strangled first. But as they light the fire, and legend goes that they took some of the translations of the Bible into English that he had made. They confiscated them. They put them below the stake to light the fire, these Bibles. He resuscitates. He starts breathing again. And as he's burning alive, and this is the one thing he cries out loud, multiple sources, he says this. He says, oh, God, open the eyes of the king of England. Oh God, open the eyes of the king of England. Let him see that what is in this book has the power to change lives. Now, why were they so angry? Why did this man, in their estimation, need to be executed? A lot of it came back to one word, the word "ecclesia." this original word for the church that Jesus uses in Matthew 16. When William Tyndale comes to this word "ecclesia." He doesn't translate it as house of the Lord. He doesn't translate it as the leaders of the church. He translates it, the word congregation. Congregation. And that was incredibly threatening to the established church. Because if the power, if the movement, if the intention of Jesus was that it would be about a congregation, a gathering, the original meaning of this word ecclesia if it was about individuals, that would change everything. And they thought, this man needs to die. Because he interprets church as a congregation, not as a building or a leadership structure. He was on to something. There have always been people like Tyndale, priests, nuns, missionaries, individuals who believe that the church is more than a series of buildings. It's more than a, a system of leadership. It's about followers of Jesus involved in something very, very big. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to look at two texts two passages of scripture in the New Testament that are our first glimpses into this idea of church. What does it mean to be a church who serves a really big God? The first is from the book of Matthew chapter 16. Here's the setting. Jesus is with his disciples. He's nearing the end of his life. He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And if we had time, we'd talk about the historical events that have happened in this place. It's Alexander the Great has marched through here. It's the crossroads at the north of Israel. Uh, there's there's a, a spot right there where part of the Jordan River pours out of a crack in the rock. And it's this deep hole. They called it the gates of hell. The gates of Hades. The Greeks would come and sacrifice into this hole to their god Pan. To bring spring about every year. So Jesus is visiting with a group of, of young men. His disciples would have been scandalous. This is not the place where you took a whole bunch of teenage men. It was a place that was considered, it was kind of like the Las Vegas of Israel at the time. And uh, Jesus is standing there and let's pick up. He's going to ask them some questions and he's going to use the word ecclesia church for the first time. This is the first time it's going to appear. When Jesus arrived in the village of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, What are people saying about who the Son of Man is? question is this. What are people saying about me? They replied, some think that he is John the baptizer. John has just been executed. Some Elijah, one of the dominant Old Testament prophets. Some Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet. Or one of the other prophets. And then he pressed them. He pressed them. And how about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the Messiah. Two titles, Christ, anointed one, Messiah, the promised one. This this one that humanity has been waiting for to fix everything that's wrong. To heal the rift between God and man. The son of the living God. When Jesus came back, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My Father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You're Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. There it is, Ecclesia. This is the rock that I'll put together my church, Ecclesia. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to. To keep it out. And that's not all. You will have have complete and free access to God's kingdom. Keys to open any and every door. No more barriers between heaven and earth. Earth and heaven. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. Our first introduction to this word church. What does Jesus say? Here's point number one. Jesus is... The architect and builder of the church absolutely and emphatically when Jesus gives us this first picture of what his church will be what does he say he says guess who the raw material is going to be for my church it's not going to be wood bricks stone mortar he says the material that I will use to build my church are human beings Peter you're one of those human beings And from this point on, my mission after I've gone to the cross and I've resurrected is I am going to build something using human beings, people, not leadership structures and dynamics and philosophies, not not buildings, not cathedrals. I am going to use people to build something so expansive and so powerful, and it is going to have a very, very clear mission. What is the mission? What is the mission? He says, it will threaten the gates of hell. I grew up in the church. I'm Grateful for that. But I had, for 25 years of my life, absolutely misunderstood the scripture. I had a fortress mentality. I was kind of always being taught that, like, boy, here comes, here comes the, the gates of hell. And we're behind and we're holding up the gates like, no, you're not going to make it. Jesus, keep the gates up if I understand this correctly, it's the exact opposite. Jesus says, I'm going to build a church that has a mission. And the mission is it's going to tear down the gates of hell. Behind the gates of hell is where people find themselves locked in addictions, in fear, in isolation, in loneliness, in guilt, and in shame. That's where hell wants to keep us. Locked up, controlled, And Jesus says, what I'm going to do through human beings like you, Peter, is I'm going to build a church that comes at the gates of hell and hell's saying, please don't. And we're saying, "Mm mm-hmm. We're going to knock down the gates of hell so that people find freedom, so that people find hope, so that people can find forgiveness and healing and freedom from shame. That's the mission of the church. Jesus says, what I'm going to build is going to rock the foundations of our world. It is going to change things. Listen, in the early church, there was no one who was bored. Oh boy. They're like, where's hell? Give me a squirt gun. And I'm running at it. Like, I'm taking it on. I'm going to find out how to change the world. This is what this was all about. You're Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock, on this idea that God's moving through human beings, I'm going to tear down the gates of hell. Jesus, there's not a chance in that text that Jesus was talking about a structure of leadership or building. He's talking about something that changes the dynamics of human life entirely. I've got to tell you something. I just, I'm going to let you into a little uh, window in my life. This is perhaps one of uh, my most appreciated, often repeated verses in the entire Bible. Here's why. When, when I first started leading churches in this capacity, I, uh, there's, there's a unique pressure, right? And you think about how do we fill seats? How do we make our budget? How do we give to all the things that we really believe in? How do we have a good impact on the world around us? And I'll tell you what, my first four or five years of leading churches were absolutely and totally exhausting because I thought that it was my responsibility to build the church. That makes sense, right? Nate, we're hiring you. Build the church. I'm like, I'm trying so hard. I'm working. I'm doing everything. I gave it everything, right? And this moment of utter exhaustion, I reread this text. And it just took a weight off of my chest that I can't ever even explain. So when it comes to the church, I think, I don't know, Jesus, your church. You said you were going to build it. I'll help. I'm not talking that, you know, I only work Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. I'm going to give myself, I'm a partner, I'm going to throw myself into it. But you know what? I am not responsible for building this church. It's not my job. There is someone named Jesus who promised to build his church. There is an energy that is flowing that is not mine. My job is just to run alongside and say, okay, what are you doing now, Jesus? I want to help out. That's beautiful. Jesus is responsible for building this place in every church that you can imagine. And one of my greatest jobs is to get out of his way. Jesus didn't say, you know what, I want to think about a church and I'll get some people and I'll kick them in the rear end and get them out there to make it happen. Jesus said he is actively, intentionally engaged in building his church. This is what he has been doing for 2,000 years. And that's why you've never been able to crush the church. That's why when communism came to China, there's something like 30,000 people who declared that they're followers of Jesus. After years of oppression, after years of trying to stamp out the Christian church, guess what you have now? Something like 36 million followers of Jesus. While it's been outlawed, while it's been attempted to destroy, while you imprison its leaders, what happens? It's because Jesus is always building his church. It means he's building individual lives. It means that he's looking at you like he's looking at Peter and he's saying, I'm giving you a new name. Simon's name before this, had, it was like a reed, okay? Simon meant something that just swayed in the wind. He goes, now I'm calling you Petros, Peter, and you're going to be a rock. And that's the business of Jesus is he finds people who are a little bit uncertain, a little bit unreliable. And he says, you know what I'm going to do in you? I'm going to build something that is strong and secure, so expansive, that what God is going to do through you is going to tear down the gates of hell. People are going to find freedom and hope. Hungry people are going to be fed. Oppressed people are going to be freed. Confused people people are going to have wisdom. Jesus is the architect and the builder of the church. It's not some significant leader. It's not some person that has it all figured out. It is Jesus. That's what the church is all about. I want to move on now jump ahead to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to read a text, and we're going to kind of float through all of Acts chapter 2. I'd encourage you to go back and read it yourself later this week. But we're going to see two more really important things about this idea of church, what what makes it significant. So Jesus is the one who establishes it. He's the one who builds it. He's working today. He's doing things that we can't explain. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to read a little something else. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been with his disciples for 40 days, and they ask him this. They said, So, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to reestablish the kingdom. And here's their question. Are you going to make Israel strong again? Are are we going to be able to bring back a king? Are we going to be able to chase out the Romans? And Jesus says, you got the wrong idea. He says, what I want you to do now is go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait, because what I'm about to do is I'm about to send you my spirit. And when the Spirit of God comes on you, you will receive power. That's the key word. You'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city therein, Judea, the region, Samaria, out to foreign languages into the ends of the earth. He says, So you go and wait, and here's what's going to happen. This is this is the fulfillment of that, Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, penta from the word five, it's fifty days after Passover, when Jesus died. When the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place, because Jesus had told them to go there. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled. All of them. You have men, you have women, you have young, you have older. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them. Jump ahead. They say, what is going on? They go out into the streets. There's 14 different languages represented. Everybody's come for the feast of Pentecost to Jerusalem and they're all telling the story of Jesus in a language they never learned. How many people would like that? I am a quarter Mexican and I I worked hard to get a C in Spanish, right? Anybody wish that God just gave you a language you didn't learn and it it led to somebody's life being changed? So they say, what's going on? This is what Peter says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. We'll jump ahead. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what, are, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. So what just happened to the people in the upper room? It's for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a big church, right? 3,000 one day. I actually just read a scholarly study. It said they believed that somewhere 20 years after this, there were 100,000 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem alone. It transformed the culture. It changed everything. So, Jesus is the architect and the builder of the church. What else do we learn about what this ecclesia, this gathering of people, is really supposed to be? Number two, the church exists to continue to proclaim the message of Jesus and to complete the mission of Jesus. The church wasn't called to get a ticket to heaven and just wait to die. That's not the church. I know that we've seen all expressions of the church. Some of us in the room, I understand, in your journey, you've engaged something painful. Painful. And it was done by someone who called themselves a Christian. Listen, the church has always been terribly imperfect. We serve a perfect God, but it's filled with dysfunctional, broken people. Okay? I apologize for that, and that is a reality. I'm one of them. Okay? Dysfunctional and broken, but following Jesus. What we are to do is to continue to proclaim the message of Jesus and do, carry out, accomplish the mission of Jesus. When Jesus came to planet Earth, he had a message that people flocked from far and wide to hear. It was a message that God was a God of second chances. It was a message that there was a God who loved you. It was a message that you could turn to him and he would forgive your sins. It was a message that there is nothing in you that he can't heal, fix, or restore. It was a message that people longed to hear 2,000 years ago and long to hear today. The world is still longing to hear that God is engaged with this world. That he has not abandoned this planet. And that's what Jesus spoke and people needed to hear. That is the message the church has today. And our message can always be corrupted. It can always be modified. It can always be doled down. But that message at its core is what the world longs to hear. And if we ever stop proclaiming that message, if we ever dilute it to make it easier or more palatable, we've corrupted it and to accomplish the mission of Jesus. Jesus didn't just come down to talk, scholarly talks about who the Father was. He talked in ways that people understood, and then he saw human need, and he engaged with human need. He healed the sick. He freed the tormented. He opened the eyes of the blind. He spoke words that liberated people whose hearts had been fractured because of pain and mistreatment. Jesus had a mission to begin the process of restoring what is so broken in our world. And so what does the church do? We continue those two things, to speak the message and to do the work. In the first century, you couldn't go to church because you were the church. And these early followers said, all right, it's clear to me, I am supposed to go and do what Jesus did, to say what Jesus said. The mission of the church has always been very, very clear. We've been diverted. We've been distracted. We've found political agendas and military agendas. we found moralistic agendas. But here's, the, here's, here's the, what the church is supposed to do. It's to make followers of Jesus Christ. Make disciples. Help people understand who God is, fall in love with him, have their lives transformed. This is this is when the church is at its best. It's not when you're at a convention with a bunch of pastors. In June, I'm going to need to go to our family of churches. It's our annual convention, and I mean it's great to be in a room with five thousand pastors, and you know they're pretty into it, right? Worship gets a little rowdy. Okay, great speakers and communicators. That's not when the church is at its best. You know when the church is at its best? is when there's a group of people meeting in your home, studying the Bible, praying for each other. The church is at its best. It is the most effective when you are praying for the sick, when you are serving someone who is hurting and broken. The church is at its best. When you go back to your dorm rooms, when you go back to your apartments, your cul-de-sacs, wherever you live and you are the church that is when the church is at its finest not when it's contained in a room but when it continues the message and the mission of jesus in loving compassionate bold ways that's the church that's the church that jesus intended a gathering of people who are transforming the world the church is not a group of passive observers it is engaged believers who are on mission, accomplishing the things that Jesus intends. It's not observation. It's not an observer sport. It's evolved. It's evolved. Yesterday, early in the morning, uh, took our, our son who's, uh, he's trying to figure out what he wants to go to college, and different schools wanted him to play football. And I was amazed. We were, at, uh, we were over at Bozeman. And here's what they do. They, they get the boy in there. And they, they put a Bobcat jersey on him with his high school number, right? And they take pictures of him. And they're going to send him the pictures. In front of a backdrop that looks like he's standing in front of a full stadium at Cat Stadium, right? And, I mean, as a dad, you're watching him. This boy is so proud and so happy. They're not recruiting him to be a spectator. They didn't put him, you know, like in a cheerleader's outfit and put a pom-pom in his hand and say, hey, we want you to envision yourself, you know, as a spectator. We didn't put him in a fan outfit, right? Picture yourself freezing in the stands, cheering. They pictured him. They wanted to see himself as a participant. Jesus wants you to see yourself as a participant. You are the church. You are the church. Here's the third thing. The church comes into existence only when the Spirit of God fills the followers of Jesus. Okay, this is Acts chapter 2. If we didn't have that, we would just be another humanitarian organization. There are great humanitarian organizations out there. They're trying to feed hungry people. They're trying to free captives. Yay for them. I applaud them. Here's the one thing that is different between all these great organizations and the church. The church has a power behind it that is not built on passion it's not built on intensity it's the spirit of god and the spirit of god makes all the difference i've, I've always wanted to sail okay I, I don't know why but i've never lived in a great place for sailing like you know sailboats on lake elmo you know not a big dream not a big dream but a few times I've been on friend sailboats, and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's so peaceful, but you're, you're sitting there, and you have this boat that has no capacity to move on its own. But when it catches the wind, when the wind fills the sails, you feel this surging movement forward. There's an unseen power that propels it forward, and soon you hear the water being cut by the bow, and you feel this movement forward. When we read Acts chapter 2, that is exactly what is happening. Here's a group of people they're in an upper room. Jesus said, I want you to go do what I did. I want you to speak what I spoke, but you're not going to do it alone. I am sending a power that is going to propel you forward that you don't have to generate. It's not about your effort. It is the spirit of God. In fact, I I love that he goes back to the old Testament and he uses this idea of wind and the idea of fire, two things that have always represented God, fire, fire, always represented the power of God in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Moses comes to a burning bush, a pillar of fire leads people for 40 years through a wilderness. And where does the fire come from? And where does it land in Acts chapter two? I don't know, how scary would this be? Why do they use the word tongue? I don't even, like a tongue of fire and it, you know, are you trying to put the fire out on somebody's head? And you're like, no, my head's on fire. What it is, it is the fire. It means the presence of God is now upon and within human beings. And then he brings up this other phrase, he says, in a sound like a mighty rushing wind blew through the place. In Hebrew, the wind, the word wind is rucha, rucha. In Greek it's pneuma, right? And here we have this wind. Oh, and if you were a first century Jewish person, you'd, be, you'd understand what was happening. In Genesis chapter two is God is recreating Adam. He's, he's there, he's biologically existing. He's made out of the dust and dirt of the earth. And God leans over him and there's one thing that mankind is missing. It is the rucha, the breath, the wind of God. So God breathes over Adam and breathes into him. The very life of God. And Adam becomes a living spiritual being. The one thing that is different from Adam and Eve and the rest of creation. The breath of God. God is breathing into humanity. In Acts chapter 2, once again, it is a recreation story. It is dead people experiencing the life of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And so from that point onward, where does the church go? The church goes forward, not through more and more effort and more and more we try harder, we do better. There is this force of the Spirit of God moving through them, changing the world. And every now and then we get confused and we forget what the church is about. We think it's about structures and we think it's about leaders. And God says, no, the church is about the followers of Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit surging through them with the presence of God in them doing the things that Jesus did. And without the Holy Spirit, we're dead in the water. So you don't do this alone. I don't do this alone. There is something empowering us that can't be seen. But it's so real. I want to close with a few thoughts. Remember this. I don't come to church. I am the church. If if you didn't remember anything else, ecclesia, all this, you are the church. Because I have a unique advantage. I work on Mondays and most Mondays I come into this room and I'll come in here just to spend some time reflecting this place. There's nothing special about it on Monday morning. It's dark. It's cold. And to be honest, it's a little spooky. Okay? There's no windows. Like, it's pitch black in here. I'll be, like, down here trying to pray, trying to think. And the heater comes on, and I, like, jump a little bit. There is nothing special about this room if you're not here. The only thing unique about this building are the people who occupy it. And when you leave, the church leaves. There's nothing here if you're not here. And so when you depart, the church goes. And it goes back to Park City, it goes back to Billings, it goes back to Laurel, it goes to Roundup and Rappel Jay and Columbus and every city that you can imagine, the church goes. This building is not a trophy, it's a tool. Our buildings will always be a tool for the church to gather, never a trophy. If this carpet doesn't wear out in the next 10 years, I'm going to be angry. If the youth department doesn't put a hole in the sheetrock, something's going wrong. Okay, It's a tool that we use so that the church can meet, and that is all that it is. I want to end with this phrase. I, I love this quote from Mark Statura. He says this, The mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. I'm grateful for this building, right? Uh, Last weekend, we filled it up with over 8,000 people. Lots of people were baptized. Lots of people made a commitment to follow Jesus. Grateful for the seating capacity. But what really matters is its sending capacity. What happens when service is over? Are we sending people back home? Are we sending church planners? I have a poster in my office with 72 cities in Montana and Wyoming where we want to, in North Dakota where we want to plant churches. Like you want to plant a church, I, I can send you to Wolfport tomorrow. Okay. What's our sending capacity? Where are our missions, missionaries being sent? Where are we, are we going to schools? Are we doing the things that Jesus would do? The church is on mission serves a really big God who is still breathing life into it to this day. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we have all kinds of reasons why maybe you should have done this differently, but you decided that your church would be built from human beings. Human beings who are prone to mistake and failure. But you said, what I'll do is I'll build a church that will threaten the gates of hell by infusing the Spirit of God, the presence of God, into ordinary followers of Jesus. And that would lead to extraordinary events. So, Lord, we are the church. We want to be a big church on a big mission Lord, it's our sending capacity that matters. Father, I pray for every one of us in the room. Some of us feel small. Some of us feel as if we make little difference. I pray that right now the wind of the Spirit of God would blow into our sails and we would be propelled not by a sense of confidence, but by a sense of there is a God who is working through me to save this world. Father, would you give us words to speak that we never dreamt of? Would you do things that are beyond explanation as you move in this world? In your name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you so much for being here. I'm excited about looking at the church over the next few weeks. Be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, there's people you can trust or you have questions, head to one of these I Have Decided banners. We'll get a Bible in your hand. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is now leaving the building. God bless you.